Not only does that not convince people, it totally turns you off in, in exactly the opposite direction. And, um, you know, you judge people to make yourself feel better at the expense of them feeling worse. Um, and, and we see a lot of that type of finger pointing when it comes to issues like climate change. Welcome to Vin. I am your host, Ted Tyler, joined live in studio by my good friend, partner in radio, Joel Sam. It is a very lovely, stormy day in Bryan, Texas, and we're doing what we do best, which is, is podcasting. So I'm excited to be inside and to be able to clearly watch the stormy overcast day as we talk about something related to weather, climate. Ooh. Hey, Ted, how do you feel about the rain? I love the rain. It puts me in a good mood. I don't love rain. It makes me sad. But I do like what we're experiencing now, which is where the sun is really bright and the sky is really bright and it's still drizzling. Um, Down here in the South, we call that uh, when the devil's beating his wife. I don't know what that means or where it came from, but that's something that that I heard once or twice and... Is that a Texas thing? I think so. In Arkansas and Georgia, we do not do that. This is a Texas. (laughs) I don't. I don't know about the devil's domestic affairs. Like I'm not invested in that. Um, But you know, speaking of climate, we have a really exciting topic and a really exciting guest, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Um, Dr. Hayhoe works at Texas Tech University in the in the kind of the interface of climate change and policy. Uh, Is that is that correct, Dr. Hayhoe? Would you, is that how it you is. describe it? Mm-hmm. I am an atmospheric scientist. Atmospheric science is actually a branch of physics, but I am now a professor in the Department of Political Science, and I co-direct our Climate Center, which includes faculty from almost every part of the university. We have faculty from English, education, psychology, law, architecture, as well as you know the traditional um, biology um, and engineering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Dr. Hayhoe's work is almost like a combination of Ted and I's work to some degree. Ted is a political scientist and I am a materials engineer. And so there's a, I don't know if there's an intersection, Dr. Hayhoe is working there. So we're really excited. Also, I've been a fan uh, via the internet of Dr. Hayhoe's work for a really long time. And so this is, this is a, a really special moment for me personally. Yeah. How, how are you dealing with the moment, Joel? You're like getting to meet a, a celebrity, like you know, what, what was your, like, did you wake up today? Like really excited? Like couldn't, you know, so nervous you couldn't sleep. I did. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I, ha- I have to tell you the, the time when I've been most nervous is when I had to attend um, an award dinner and I bought a dress that was too long and I didn't have time to get it hemmed. So what do you do if you buy a dress that's too long, you get really high heels right? So I was wearing five inch heels for the first time in my life. And I was walking up this red carpet and it was raining so hard that I was afraid I was just going to slip and fall flat on my face. So that is probably the most nervous I have been. And as I was walking up, I was trying to focus on other things. And so I was looking at the woman in front of me. She was a very tall woman. She was very sensibly wearing like this kind of gold lame mother of the bride suit. And I was thinking to myself, what a smart thing to do, wear a suit with sensible shoes. And her hair was perfectly done. And I thought to myself, she looks just like Martha Stewart. And then she turned around and it was Martha Stewart. That's incredible. <laughs> so, 
So thankfully, I did not fall flat on my face or land on Martha Stewart. Wow. That was probably one of the times I was most nervous. <laughs> that's 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 amazing. Yeah, I could only dream to be within tripping distance of Martha Stewart. <laughs> yeah. What? Well, okay. So I've, I'm curious. What kind of you know award ceremony was it where you found yourself at the same ceremony as Martha Stewart? What? What's the? What's the? How? Did, what's the connection there? That was for, well, it was for something where I got an email and I thought the email was one of those emails that uh, we academics get fairly regularly. Congratulations, you've been named one of the 500 whatever whatevers. Send us $500 and we Mm. will send you your plaque. And those, for anybody who doesn't get those, are traditional classic scams where um, this list is just something that's invented to collect money from people who want to put a plaque on their wall. And the plaque costs like $10 to make. So I got this email saying, congratulations, your name to this top 100 list. And I thought it was spam. And so I just deleted the email. But then about a week later, I got this email that said, we need to know if you're attending the dinner please reply. And I thought to myself, well, that's unusual. Normally they ask for $500. They don't ask you to attend a dinner. So I forwarded it to our uh, communications office at our university. And I said, I'm pretty sure this isn't real, but could you just check? And my phone rang within 10 minutes and it was our communications guy. And he said, are you sitting down? And I said, yes. And he said, this is real. It is the time 100 most influential people in the world. And you've been named to the list and they want you to come to the dinner. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's amazing. That's oh, that would be tragic if if that slipped through the cracks. Well, I mean, as any good scientist would be, you're skeptical. Mm, so, you mm. know, you've got to do some scientific inquiry and, you know, test your hypothesis. I mean, that was good science right there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I'll tell you what's really funny is, so the next year I got an email saying, congratulations, you've been named to the foreign policy list of 100 global thinkers. Would you like to come to the award event? So then I, I, I knew by then this was probably real. Um, so I showed up at the award event um, and the seat beside me was empty. And I said, oh, where is Dr. So-and-so? Because I knew who was supposed to be beside me. And they said, well, it turns out he thought it was a scam. Oh, no. (laughs) And he just found out yesterday it wasn't, but it wasn't in enough time to actually come. So I'm not the only scientist who this Mm. has occurred to. (laughs) Wow. Well, you know, let's get started on our topic. I, uh, I don't know, Ted, what are your, you know, tell me your story with climate change. Like, have you been around skepticism or, um kind of that political you're more in the political arena than I am so what have, what have you observed in the conversation on climate change well yeah I think just thinking uh, for myself and how my own views have shifted I would say probably up and through definitely high school and probably into first couple years of college I was pretty skeptical of climate change mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that was informed by a lot of the people I was reading or, you know, following on Twitter or, um, yeah, just kind of politically like where I found myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I think over time, as I started shifting into more of the policy realm, I started just seeing people who weren't scientists um, talk about how important it was. And I think even seeing just how concerned like the military is about climate change, like climate change is a security issue. I saw all these people who I think had every, you know, they were the ones that maybe stood to win from climate change being fake news or, or whatever, but they were saying, well, actually this is something that we feel is very threatening 
Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. even even seeing the language shift, like I remember as like middle school, maybe into high school, it was all global warming. And that maybe not being the most accurate term, like climate change itself encapsulating just, you know, the climate as a whole, it might not be the temperature. Mm-hmm. The temperature could be increasing or decreasing. There could be, um, you know, more gases in the atmosphere. So I think just even the concept mm-hmm. changing and the way people talked about the concept changing really allowed me to see, oh, this is bigger than just a feud in the academic community, this is something that matters and there's a lot at stake here. Mm -hmm. And so I think just as I found people in my career field talking about it, that really helped me see that, yeah, it is something that needs to be taken seriously. And I think too, just as a follower of Christ, even seeing pastors and theologians, I respect say, no, like this is real. Like Mm -hmm. this isn't some made up hoax. Like as Christians being good stewards of the earth involves taking this seriously and investigating it and coming up with solutions to, um, to combat uh, climate change. Right, right. Oh, that was an excellent summary. You know, oh, Dr. Yeah. Hayhoe uses a term sometimes called global weirding. Can you maybe uh, describe that, um, like how you came up with that term and what it all entails? Mm-hmm. So I think that was a very kind of insightful analysis of the trajectory of your changing opinions that a lot of people can identify with. Because we are all these days cognitive misers, right? I mean, we literally don't have the time, let alone the brain cells, to process all the information about all the issues that are happening today that we feel like we should have an opinion on. And so because of that, we listen to people we trust. And people we trust are often people who we share political opinions with, we share um, a faith tradition with, we share values with, we share something else like, you know, we're from the same place, we care about the same things, we might both have military experience, or we both care about... um, you know, things like hunting or fishing, or we're in a parenting group together or something like that. So that's a very natural place to look for our opinions on things. And when we do, often, depending on the group that we look at, we can hear conflicting information. So some people will be saying, or some groups will be saying, oh, no, this thing isn't real. And then other people will be saying, oh, no, it's very serious. We have to act. And often, none of the voices we hear are actually scientific voices, They're often voices of people who might have an interest one way or another. And in some cases, there's actually manufactured fake experts. Mm. In fact, kind of crazy. I was just um, watching today a video by an expert on disinformation called John Cook, who is also a fellow Christian. And he was uh, in his video today, he was explaining how there was a survey done a number of years ago that purported to have 30,000 experts sign this survey saying, no, climate change is not dangerous, it's not real, it's not happening. But when you actually look into who those 30,000 people are, 99.9% of them are fake experts. So in other words, they're people who don't actually know what they're talking about. They just signed this and said, yes, I'm an expert. Mm. So that is a really, really compelling piece of, of misinformation that convinces a lot of us. Because if I hear, oh, 30,000 experts say it's not real. Well, if I'm not an expert, I'm like, oh, well, 30,000 experts, I'll go with them. We don't stop to actually dig into the fact that some of those 30,000 experts are Perry Mason, a fictional detective, mm. or Spice Girls apparently signed this several times. I don't think they did in real life, but people using the Spice Girls names. I think and Baby was, Spice has a has a um, MS in climate science, hasn't she? Yeah, did you, I think did you so. hear about that? 
Uh, well, I yeah, I don't, th- I don't think that she really signed it. Or even, even there's a couple of Dr. Red Wines who signed it too. Mm, <laughs> so anyways. Mm. Um, but, uh, so knowing that scientists agree, I think, is really important. In fact, it's often been told, um, been called a gateway fact, that once people understand that just about every single scientist in the world agrees that, yes, this is real, it's humans, and it's serious, that actually has a huge impact on our opinions. But using the word global warming, I agree, can often be kind of misleading too. Because if you think it's global warming, then what happens when it's cold outside? You're Mm -hmm. like, oh, so much for global warming. What happens when it snows? It's like, oh, so much for global warming. But if we explain that it's climate change and that it's just getting weirder, which is where the title of my YouTube series comes from, Global Weirding, things are just getting weirder, then people get it. So a couple of years ago, I was standing in line um, after church to pick up my son at Sunday school. And the father in front of me turned to me, and he was somebody I knew a little bit, not well, but he knew what I did. And he said, you know, he said, I've lived here for 30 years, and our weather is just getting weirder. I can see it. I know what it used to be look like, and I know what it's like today, and it is weirder. And he said, am I right? And I said, yes, you are absolutely right. Because not only is he right that it's getting weirder, he's right that that's the way to think about it. The way things used to be is changing. In some cases, our seasons are getting warmer. In some cases, our summers are getting longer. That's what's happening in Houston, for example. Summers are getting longer. Extreme heat is getting more frequent. Our rainfall is getting more variable. The average rainfall isn't changing across Texas. Mm -hmm. But what's happening is our dry periods are getting longer and stronger. And then we have these heavy downpours in between. So we always have crazy weather where it goes up and down, up and down, you know, hot, cold, warm, dry. But it's like what's happening is that pattern of variability is getting stretched in both directions. And I personally think that weirder is the best way to think about it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is helpful because yeah, it just is a much more broad concept and it captures just a lot of different changes that one could experience mm-hmm. um, within this phenomenon. Uh, Dr. Hale, I'm just curious, could you share a little bit about your background? Like how did you end up with, you know, where you are, like with this interest? You know, you, I don't imagine you just woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm going to become an atmospheric scientist who then is a fighter for climate change policy like like could you just share a little bit about your story how you you know got to where you are today and i think i'm specifically interested in the transition from the atmospheric science to the policy side of things mm-hmm. um well you're absolutely right that is not something that just i just woke up one day and decided this is what i want to do uh, i very much looking backwards see a number of inflection points in my life that kind of took my trajectory that was heading in a certain direction and just moved it in some cases a few degrees in some cases 90 degrees from where i thought i was going and i also feel too as a christian looking back i feel very much like that famous um uh foot footprints poem says i feel very much as if i see god's hand in each one of those inflections that's occurred in my life because in me- in many cases they weren't what i would have chosen myself if i just kind of sat down and thought about it but in the moment i absolutely knew that that was the right direction to head in um, and without a doubt looking backwards um, it was so first of all i started off um, life with a dad who was a science teacher who he has six sisters and three daughters. He used to joke that the only other male in the house besides him was the cat. And so he 
he never thought that science was like something that girls didn't do. He thought anybody would love science because science was the most fascinating thing in the world to do. How could anybody not want to study science to understand how this world and this universe functions? So growing up, um, not only was science demystified, it wasn't something kind of that only certain type of people did, but science was, was presented to me as something that was fun and interesting and fascinating and compelling. So from that perspective, I thought, well, how can I not study science? I mean, obviously anyone in their right mind would want to, right? And just to be clear, you know, I include the social sciences in that too. Um, because studying how people act and think is absolutely fascinating and even harder to predict than things that follow physical laws. So I started off studying astrophysics uh, because of all the many fascinating things you can study. I think it's particularly interesting that we can figure out things from the other side of the universe, which is literally looking back in time using nothing more than our brains and the relatively small and puny instruments that we can fashion here on planet Earth. Um, we can discover incredible things about this universe. So I was studying astrophysics. I was planning to continue doing so in graduate school. I was already doing research on galaxy clustering around quasars um, when I needed an extra course to finish my degree. So I'd already taken um, children's literature. I'd already taken the architecture of the Gothic cathedral. I'd already taken like all the interesting courses you take that you want to take just because you're interested in them. Um, so I looked around and it turns out there was a brand new class on climate science over in the geography department. So I thought to myself, well, that looks interesting. Growing up in Canada, um, you learn about climate change in your geography and your science classes. So I knew that climate was changing. I knew that humans were responsible. But I thought of it as something that people who are environmentalists care about and everybody else wishes them well. So, you know, I learned about deforestation. I learned about air pollution. I learned about biodiversity loss. I learned about climate change. And I accepted all those as real problems. And I accepted them as problems that we should be taking action on. But I had sort of mentally categorized them as problems that people who are environmentalists work on. And everybody else supports them, applauds them, says, yes, good job. Let's, go, let's keep on doing that. But I didn't see myself as an environmentalist. So I didn't see that as my job. So I take this class on climate change and it completely blew me away for two reasons. The first reason is I learned that climate science is all physics. The exact same physics that I had been learning in my radiative transfer classes and my planetary atmospheres and my orbital dynamics classes. I don't know what I thought it was, but I didn't think it was physics. And then the second thing that really changed my trajectory was recognizing that climate change is not only an environmental issue per se. Climate change is a health issue. Climate change is a poverty issue. Climate change is a justice issue. Climate change is an economic issue. It's an engineering and an infrastructure issue. It's a national security issue. Climate change is an everything issue. And to care about climate change, we only have to be one thing, and that's a human living on planet Earth. And I was certainly that. Every single one of us is that. And not only was I the perfect person to care, but I serendipitously had the exact skill set that you needed to study climate change. And so at that moment, I felt absolutely compelled. I thought, here we have this global issue that is disproportionately affecting the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet, the very people who we as Christians are told to care for and love. And I have the skills that you actually need to study this. How could not? We have to fix it because it isn't fair. It's already causing suffering today and it's just going to get worse. So I need to do what I can to help. And that was where I decided that I really needed to 
you know, in that case, it was pretty much a 90 degree turn, go from astrophysics to atmospheric science. And also, I didn't want to just do scientific research in the ivory tower, so to speak. I wanted to do something that would actually make a difference that would be used to make decisions. So that's where I also decided I wanted to do policy relevant research. I deliberately looked for an advisor who was interested in that. Um, but the communication part didn't come until later. That was the second inflection point in my life. Yeah, could you, you know, let's talk about the communication, because I think one thing that we've discussed with some other guests on our podcast who are academics is, you know, maybe in most academic training, you don't really get communication training when it comes to talking to the general public. Maybe you're a teaching assistant, so you need to learn how to teach students or present at a conference, but you're you're presenting to people maybe in your field or when you're writing journal articles, it's you're writing to other scientists. You're not writing for the general public or for the skeptic unless you know they're also an academic. Learning to communicate with the general public. Do you think you were already maybe gift, naturally gifted that way? Did you receive any kind of special training throughout your academic career? Or have you just maybe self-taught, okay, if I'm going to talk about something as important as climate change with a lot of skeptics, maybe in the general population, or at least a lot of loud skeptics, um, how did you learn those communication skills? And what does it, you know, what does it look like to be an effective scientist, but one who can communicate results or ideas or policy well to the general public? Can you just speak to that? Yes, I would say all of the above. So uh, both of my parents are teachers, and I am not scared of public speaking. You know how some people say they're more scared of public speaking than dying, so they'd rather be in the in the coffin at their own funeral than giving the eulogy. <laughs> no, I would be much happier giving the eulogy than being in the coffin. I would love to give um, the eulogy at my own funeral. Let's let's we, orchestrate that. Let's put a pin in that. These days you can actually, you can video yourself, <laughs> but I think that's a different speaker, a different podcast maybe. Mm, mm. Um, so, so I've always had an appreciation for good communication, but training is absolutely essential. And so is practice. And so is reflection. So even today, when I give a talk, I think to myself, what went well? What, what really got through? What didn't? What could I have done better? And I listen very carefully to the questions and the feedback I get to see how I could be doing things better in the future, because I feel like you can always improve. So I still read books. I still take pointers from what I read and try to apply that to what I do. I follow the social science literature on communication communication and messaging and framing to pick up pointers all the time. And I apply it and I practice, practice, practice. And I think that that goes into almost anything we want to be good about, right? Mm -hmm. So if we want to be good about uh, at something, it helps if we have a little bit of natural talent, but it also helps to practice and it also helps to learn and to be taught and to get coaching and to find information from people who've gone before. And I think that applies to everything from sports to cooking to our academic or scientific discipline to communicating. Mm -hmm. uh, because you're totally right. I mean, as scientists, we are taught often implicitly, but sometimes explicitly, if we have a really good advisor or a good program, we are taught how to communicate as a scientist. And that method of effective scientific communication is often, often diametrically opposed to what consists of good public communication. Because as scientists, we're taught to use very precise language. So we have extremely precise words to use so that as a, when a fellow expert reads it, they will know exactly what we mean by that word. But if somebody not in our field reads it, they probably won't have a clue. Mm -hmm. We are also taught as scientists to emphasize complexity and uncertainty. 
because that's really the emphasis of our research is what do we know versus what we don't know. We're studying what we don't know, not what we do. But in public communication, it's most important to emphasize what we do know. Because, for example, with climate change, we have known since the 1850s that digging up and burning coal, and then obviously later oil and natural gas, produces heat-trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing the planet to warm. We've known that since the 1850s. Yet, if you go to a scientific conference, you're not going to hear people saying that because we've known it for over 150 years. Mm -hmm. You're going to find people arguing over the 1% that we don't know because there's so much interesting stuff that we don't know about the way clouds operate at microphysical scales, about what's happening under the massive ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica, about how our socioeconomic and political systems are responding to the stresses of more frequent or more devastating extremes from hurricanes to heat waves and droughts and heavy rainfall, uh, about how sea levels rising and how that's interacting with um, the property value of coastal properties or unique ecosystems like mangrove forests. So th there is a lot we don't know, but we've known for over 150 years that it's real and it's us. And we've known for over 50 years that it's serious and we need to act. Mm -hmm. And so communicating in the public, it's most important to say, this is what we do know. We know enough to act now. Whereas in our scientific conferences, of course, we are, we're talking about all the tiny little nuances that we find fascinating that we don't know, but increasingly those are actually scaring us too. Mm. Because we're discovering that there are the potential for some really big surprises in the climate system, and they are heavily weighted on the side of not being good surprises. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That was really helpful. Um, kind of along those lines, I was listening to a, a podcast you did recently where you were discussing that um, the most accurate predictor of someone's perspective on climate change is how they vote politically or which ideological camp they find themselves in. And so when it comes to um, good communication, um, what do you think it takes or in what ex in your experience, what do you think has worked versus what hasn't worked in terms of um, having really meaningful dialogue about the seriousness of climate change and the importance of policies in that regard? And what do you think it actually uh, requires for us to actually change minds on this issue? Well, I think your question really struck at the heart of this whole thing, which is how do we have positive, constructive conversations in an incredibly politically polarized world about anything, let alone about climate change. But climate change is the most politically polarized topic in the whole United States right now. Hmm. Climate change wow. is the most politically divisive topic. It is number one. Number two is race. And number three is coronavirus. Oh, wow. Okay. That has, that's How its own problem. virus get to be politically polarized? Well, I think we can kind of make a guess at that. And that actually mm. relates to climate change too. It isn't polarized because most people don't believe in viruses. And climate change isn't polarized because most people don't believe in thermometers. These issues are polarized over solutions. Okay. But with climate change, it's a lot easier to say it isn't real than it is to say, sure, it is real and it's affecting the poorest and most vulnerable people most, but I don't want to fix it. 
because that would make me a bad person. And none of us fundamentally want to be a good, bad person. We want to be a good person. And that's honestly why, um, you know, why we have religion is because it offers us a way to become a good person. Different religions have different pathways. In Christianity, our pathway is not through our own works or our own good deeds, but rather through accepting the sacrifice of God's Son. But we're, we, we seek to be right. We seek to be okay. We seek to be good. And saying that there's a real problem that affects the poor and the suffering today, but I don't want to fix it, that makes us a bad person. Mm. So instead of that, psychologically and, and mostly subconsciously, we look for reasons to reject the reality of the problem or reasons to reject the severity of the problem because then we can say, oh, it's okay, it's not real or it's okay, it's not bad, rather than being totally brutally honest and saying, I don't really care if it's real or it's bad as long as it doesn't affect me because I don't want to fix it. Mm. So that understanding the problem helps to understand the solutions because so often people have committed the error of assuming that it's a deficit of information on the science. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, we need better education. We need better science standards. We need um, more, better science textbooks. We need people to understand the scientific method. And so we batter people over the head with more facts and data. And it turns out that neuroscientists have found that when we are overwhelmed with facts and data and information about something that we don't agree on, not only do we shut off, so we don't absorb that information, we just shut off, this is where it gets kind of scary. It turns out that that actually increases our polarization. Hmm. So it makes the problem worse instead of making it better. Mm -hmm. So then you might say, well, but as scientists, as academics, as educators, that's what we do. So, so how are we supposed to do anything different? Information does make a difference, but it has to be the right type of information. And the problem is not lack of scientific awareness. The problem is not lack of scientific education. Although, of course, we could always do better. You know, we always feel that way. The, the problem is that we don't think it matters to us, and we don't think there's anything we can do to fix it that's consistent with our values and our ideology. Mm -hmm. So the two most effective things, and this is why I talk about my TED Talk, actually, the two most effective things that we can do in these conversations is talk about how climate change is already affecting us in the places where we live in ways that matter to us, not the polar bear, not future generations, but us here and us now, and talk about positive constructive solutions that we can get on board with that, you know, save us money, mm -hmm. create local jobs, grow the economy, increase national security, using messages from people we trust, whether it's conservative politicians or the military or faith leaders, people who share our values, getting back to what you said at the very beginning, mm -hmm. people who we respect, opinion leaders who we follow, people who share our values, but people who show why caring about climate change is 100% consistent with who we already are. We don't have to change who we are. Right. Right. Well, yeah, that was a um, powerful and poignant statement. And I think it really accurately, um, I guess, summarizes the problem and, and really reframes how many of us typically think about this issue. Joel, 
And we've been having a really great interview with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe um, about climate change and communication. Um, and now we're going to transition to the lightning round. So Dr. Heo, Joel and I have prepared some questions and, you know, this is just to allow our listeners, even ourselves to maybe get to know some more personal things about you, just, um, relate to you in uh, some serious and not so serious ways. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask you some questions and I want you to respond um, to those. So does that yeah. make sense? And as quickly as possible, kind of just like the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. okay. All right. Number one, what is a misconception that people have about you? Oh, well, it depends who they are. So when they hear I'm a scientist, people often think well, I can't be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they hear I'm a Christian, they often think, well, you can't be a scientist. Mm. But in reality, what is science if you are a Christian other than trying to figure out what God was thinking when he created the universe in the first place? Right. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, that is. Dr. Hale, you're a you know, scientist and policymaker, what idea needs to die in your field? Ooh, I think the idea that we were just talking about, that if we just hit people upside the head with more information, that they will change their minds and they will say, oh, yes, yes, you must be right. It isn't facts or information. It's identity and ideology that drives so many of our opinions today. And we have to recognize that there's more to science than just the physical sciences. There's a social science of understanding how our brain works. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was good. Yeah. Okay, if there was an Olympics for everyday activities, what activity would you have a good chance at winning a medal in? Well, if I actually had to pick a, a real Olympic activity, it would be paddling. I'm a pretty good paddler. Okay. Um, but otherwise, probably, I think I'd be a serious contender in reading. I can read really, really fast. So I, I think I could at least represent you know, my region, if not my country. Okay. Yeah, you're speaking Ted's language. His primary social network is Goodreads. Yes. Yeah. Anytime I'm doing a speaking engagement, you know, some people throw up their Instagram handle or their Twitter handle. I throw up my Goodreads handle because that's the only place I want to connect with people. Let's let's read that's books awesome. and then connect. But let's do something <laughs> offline before we do it online. That's my rant about that. I um, like that. Okay, Dr. Hayo, if you could meet and have dinner with any person who ever lived, um, who would it be and why? Well, I have been fortunate to be able to talk to a number of really incredible people, both people that you might have not heard of and people that you have. And I just feel like I've learned something from just about every conversation I've had. But if I had to pick one person, um, it would probably have been Nelson Mandela because he suffered so much and he showed so much grace and so much forgiveness in the face of the suffering that he endured personally, as well as the suffering that his people endured, that I would just want to learn from him because that really embodies, I think, the characteristic that most of us lack is that ability to forgive that ability to extend grace and that ability to move forward into the future with some people who have really done horrible things and and wronged you and hurt other people horribly in the past. But the reality is we have to move together into the future to fix climate change and to heal our world. And so I think that he had so many lessons to teach us that we can still learn from today. Mm, mm. Um, What would you do if you had enough money to not need a job? Well, um, fortunately, I feel like I'm doing something that I do love, which is really the best that most of us can hope for. Um, But I think that if I didn't need a job, I would still be spending a lot of time talking to people about why climate change matters, because what what is at risk is not our planet. I mean, this 
literal piece of rock will still orbit the earth long after we're gone. But what is at stake is the well-being of every living thing on this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, our children, ourselves, our future, the people we love, the places we love, the things that we love. And when something like that is happening, how can we not tell people that it's real, humans are responsible, the impacts are serious, but there is hope and we can act now. So I think honestly, I would just do that more. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm. What's the most ridiculous thing that you've done because you're bored? I am very rarely bored because I have so many things I love doing. Um, I love knitting. I love spending time outside. I love reading. I always have like piles of books. So I was actually just sorting my quarantine books because I had piles of books and I bought more books and I have an e-reader too. So I have a lot of books there. I was just organizing them because I felt like I'd been able to do so much reading since the beginning of the quarantine. I was feeling so good about it. It turns out I'm only 25% of my way through my pile. Oh no. I have yet to be bored because whenever I have even a flicker of boredness, I have some type of project to pick up that I've been working on or a new recipe to do or somebody to call or a new idea to to flesh out that I've been thinking about doing, but I never had the time to, or of course, a book to read. What is something that you like to do the old fashioned way? Oh, I do love the old fashioned way in many things. Oh, okay. Um, Yes. Um, I love to make things the old fashioned way. I love to cook the old fashioned way where you start from scratch instead of mm. buying pre-made ingredients. Um, I love to eat the old fashioned way. Um, and I love to learn more about people who do things the traditional way, where, whatever that is, uh, because I think there's so much knowledge and so much goodness that we've lost from the past. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's good. What musical artist do you never get tired of? That's a great question. Um, I would say, let's see, that's that's tough because I kind of have a rotating list. But I will say something that would probably surprise people. And that is, um, so when I was nine years old, we moved to Colombia in South America. And so I've always liked Latin music ever since mm-hmm. then. I mean, I listened to it all the way through high school. And, you know, high school is when your musical tastes kind of solidify, right? So um, when I'm just doing stuff around the house, if I'm just cleaning or cooking something, I always have like a, a Latin pop or a reggaeton channel on. I'm listening to things that people would probably imagine never in a million years would be on it on my on my playlist yeah that's exciting i can't say that i've ever really delved into that genre i haven't either but i kind of want to now i want to see if it's uh you know it sounds good i mean if if it's working for her you know there's a a lot more to it than despacito i promise you (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) yes um dr hayho what is something that people are obsessed with that you just don't get the point of Oh, um, what I would say, what bothers me is when people fixate on a certain word that they just think explains everything and they just overuse these words. Like in my field, nexus is a word that just gets (laughs) way overused, right? And I understand you're talking about the intersection of multiple things and actually the name Venn, right, talks about the intersection, you know, the Venn diagrams, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, when people use uh, a shortcut when they could really have a much richer and deeper conversation if they actually spelled it out, um, I think that's probably one of the things that frustrates me. Mm, That is frustrating. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on words that academics like influencers, business people, they use so much. I want to boycott the word. Right. Buzzwords. That's what they are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dr. Hale, what would your perfect vacation look like? 
Oh, I love a vacation where I actually get to the point where I might be bored. I'm never quite bored because I get to, when I get to that point, there's always something to do. But a vacation where I almost get bored, that feels like the best vacation in the world. Hmm. Interesting. So are you are you like a like a, a beach person, just pure relaxation, or is there another venue um, that suits? That? I would say water. Water has to be involved. Okay. Um, but the water can be in many forms. I love frozen water in the form mm. of snow. Um, whether you're skiing or winter camping, I love canoeing and paddling. I love um, lakes, and I do love the beach too and sailing. So I would say that the common denominator in my best vacations is always some form of water. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dr. Heho, last question. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Ooh, I know what that is because I have had this discussion with my husband. And it is the question of why do so many people who profess to believe in you, who profess to have your spirit living in them, behave in such profoundly unchristian ways? Mm. Um, I once had a conversation with a fellow academic. I'd never met him before. And um, on my schedule for visiting the university, his name popped up and I wasn't quite sure why he wanted to meet with me. Um, So, you know, he came into the room and sat down, introduced himself. And then he said, I used to be an evangelical. Mm -hmm. I said, oh. And I figured, well, I might as well ask why, because that's what he wants to talk about. So I said, why, why are you no longer? He said, because I couldn't reconcile what I believed with the way I saw everybody who called themselves an evangelical behaving. Mm And I said to him, you know what? (laughs) I absolutely hear you because today the word evangelical or even the word Christian, because a lot of white Catholics I would put in the same category, in the U.S., it has become a political identity. Mm -hmm. It is not about theology. It is not about a change in your life. It is not about living in a different way and believing different things. It is a statement that is based on a political ideology. And if your political ideology comes in conflict with what you say you believe theologically, you'll go with politics over theology every time. Hmm. So I would ask God that age old question, which is um, the question, you know, that the psalmist asked, you know, hmm. why do the, why do the wicked flourish? Well, the righteous wither. Mm-hmm, <laughs> why, mm-hmm. why does the world work like that? Why does injustice happen? Why do people who say that they follow you do such horrible things in your name? And these are the questions that we have had since day one. Right. They are endemic to the human condition. And I, I, we see some of these answers in the Bible, but I would just, I would like a personal answer to that. Yeah. And I think probably every one of us would. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hayho. How'd you feel about lightning round? Oh, it was great. You're really good at it. Some people take a long time to determine their answers and they just go on these circuitous pathways to figure out what they mean. But I think you were pretty on point. And I think for some people, it it stops becoming a lightning round and it's already the weather's already sunny again. The (laughs) thunderstorm and lightning's well over by the time they finish. So we appreciate your uh, trying to think through it as fast as possible. Well, you told me first thing that came to my head. So that's what you got. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that was good, though. That was good. Those were all good answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Dr. Hale, with, you know, the the time that we have left for this segment, I wanted to get into some of the policy um, things uh, about climate change. And so, yeah, I just wanted to ask you some questions and, you know, just kind of rack your brain a little bit. And that's the part that fascinates me the most. So um, part of my work is a researcher who proposes policy and discusses things with policymakers is trying to find, like, what are the things people care about 
And how could climate change affect those things? Because I think you were your your insight into, you know, we need to find like what are the things that people care about or how would they be directly affected? You know, I mentioned at the beginning, um, just with the national security community, when you mentioned that global warming threatens America's security, all of a sudden, you know, maybe the the Russians or the Chinese can sail their vessels a lot closer than they could before. You know, that gets their attention. Mm. So yes. I'm curious, if, as you've you know encountered skeptics or even as you've thought about this issue, what are some of the ways that people should care about climate change at a more personal level um, that they don't maybe initially think of, or they think, oh, this is safe from climate change. This won't be impacted. I wonder if you could maybe share some you know, things you've learned or, or ideas you've been um, thinking about in regards to um, how climate change affects people on a more personal level. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would do is just picking up on a word that you use probably unconsciously. I would say it isn't a case of we should care as if it's like one more thing on our endless to-do list, which is already too long and just exhausts me to think of adding something else to it. It's a case of we already do care. We just don't realize it. Mm -hmm. So it's just opening our eyes to something that we already care about. It's connecting the dots between what we, what already matters to us and what's happening to that, that we want to know about. It's as if we had termites eating our house and uh, we didn't know about it. But as soon as we know about it, the, the termite inspector doesn't have to say you should care. The termite inspector literally says the termites have eaten through your foundations and your house may collapse if you don't do something about it. He doesn't have to say you should care. Immediately, we're like, oh, what can we do about it? Because we already care about our house. So uh, so that's why it's so important, I think, to begin by, by listening or by asking questions because there's no one size fits all. It's what that person already cares about, what already matters to them, what they already love or what they're already concerned about or what is already important to them. 99 times out of 100, that thing is already being affected by climate change. They might not realize it. Mm. So let me just give you a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. So national security is a big one, and you've mentioned it a few times. Um, Back in the 1960s, one of the early climate scientists called Mikhail Budiko was in the Soviet Union, and he was one of the early climate modelers who actually looked at the future of what would happen if we kept on burning fossil fuels versus what would happen if we didn't. Based on his research, he concluded that if we burned massive amounts of coal to actually cause climate change deliberately, that the only two countries in the world that would experience a net benefit from that were, were the Soviet Union and Canada. And they didn't care about Canada. So he actually recommended as a matter of of national policy that the Soviet government burn as much coal as they could lay their hands on simply to cause climate change because it would impact the United States. Wow. (laughs) Now, people probably thought he was a bit crazy in those days. So as far as I know, they didn't actually do that as a matter of policy. But frankly, we've pretty much done that anyways. Yeah. And today, of course, Russia is experiencing all kinds of negative impacts. They've got thawing permafrost throughout Siberia that's blowing giant holes in the permafrost when all that buildup of methane gas explodes. Um, and all of their pipelines run across the permafrost. And so the pipelines are actually being destroyed. It's estimated that I think climate change is causing about a billion dollars of losses to the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. in 
Russia alone. They're experiencing record-breaking wildfires and heat waves. It was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Siberia this past June in an unprecedented heat wave. So they are being impacted. And Budika's estimate that Russia would not be harmed by climate change actually turns out to be wrong. Mm. But he was right in that the closer to the equator we are, often the more vulnerable we are because we're already living kind of at the upper end of what we can do in terms of our agriculture, our water, our ecosystems, our health, and more. And climate change is pushing us closer to our limits. But you don't have to care about national security to care about climate change. It's affecting the quality of chocolate and beer and wine, if people are aficionados of those things. If we are a farmer or a producer, it is affecting us intimately in terms of our crop productivity, the types of pests that we see, how and when our rain falls, how quickly water evaporates when we irrigate our crops. If we live in cities, it is affecting us through increasing our risk of flooding, the security of our homes, the risk of urban heat heat of, uh, heat waves, which are worse because, of course, cities are already hotter due to the urban heat island effects. And then you have a heat wave on top of it, and it has an even worse impact on people. If you care about outdoor sports, there's organizations from Ducks Unlimited to the Audubon Society for Birders to an organization called Protect Our Winters, which is made up of outdoor winter athletes that are all advocating for sensible climate policy and action to protect the pastimes that they love. Um, if we care about the health of our kids, there's organizations like the Moms Clean Air Force mm -hmm. that's all about caring about air pollution and climate change for the sake of our children. If we care about it for the sake of our faith, there's the Evangelical Environmental Network. There's the Catholic Climate Coalition. There's all kinds of, there's Green Muslims. There's all kinds of faith-based organizations. So whoever we are, we already have those values. We just have to connect the dots. And to be able to do that in a personal way, we have to know who we're talking to. And the best way to do that is to ask them questions and learn about them. And in fact, one of the best conversations I ever had with somebody who um, had a big problem with the science and had had a few arguments with me about that, the best conversation we ever had was when he noticed that I had a pair of knitting needles sticking out of my bag. And he said, oh, you knit? I said, yeah, I'm making my mom's present. He said, oh, I knit too. And we were able to have a great conversation about how it means so much more when you make presents for people rather than buying more stuff, because we already have too much stuff. We don't need more stuff. And how it's not just about recycling what we use, but it's about upcycling things that we find into something that can be used. And it turns out that he led the most sustainable low-carbon lifestyle you could imagine. <laughs> where at the end of our conversation, I said to him sincerely, I said, you know, I wish that everybody in the world thought the same way that you do about climate change as long as they live the same way you do. Because if they lived the same way you do, we wouldn't have this problem in the first place. Right. He said, are you serious? And I said, yes, I'm 100% serious. And I never would have gotten to that point if we hadn't been able to have that conversation where we genuinely connected over shared values, which all started with a pair of knitting needles. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. You know, Ted, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, coffee. I'm sorry, you mentioned chocolate, beer, and wine. Ted is a major coffee aficionado. Um, maybe you could. Uh, I'm worried, Joel. I'm yeah. worried about my coffee. I've already seen some doomsday reports that, like, you know, within maybe the next year or so, um, that coffee there's going to be a shortage of coffee. And as an mm. addict, that's not good. That's bad news for me. Yeah, we need to keep Ted functioning and able to read the uh, hundreds of books a week that he reads on on Chinese economic policy. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I guess maybe you should um, collect some tidbits of information 
on coffee communicate with your coffee world yeah. tell your local barista uh, yes. find your find the the right talking points yeah yeah definitely finding the right talking points uh, you know dr hale i'm interested you know we've we've talked you know about the problem um, you know, maybe if we could talk a little bit about some solutions, I might feel a little less depressed about, you know, just, you know, how bad things are. Um, you know, we've seen recently, especially in the last, you know, in this current presidential administration, you know, pulling out of the Paris deal. And there's a lot of like skepticism about even cooperation. Um, for me as a China scholar, you know, there's questions of, well, did the targets that China set, were they already projected to meet those? And were they just kind of lowering the goals a little bit? You know, I'm curious as you know, you think about this problem and you're a policymaker, so you're wanting to think of, well, how could we choose this? What do you think about just the state of the world and how we're approaching this? Like, do you think these large deals that people are signing, is that the best way forward? Or do countries need to maybe individually commit to making radical changes or, or does it need to be both? Do we need to have international agreements and, you know, national, you know, kind of plans to, to battle climate change? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And I'm also concerned about at the individual level. I think I've heard mm. sometimes that our individual effort in leading sustainable lifestyles doesn't make as big of an impact as um, governmental policy change. So can you maybe comment on that as well? Sure. We need system-wide change, but systems are made up of individuals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's why individuals matter. Every single one of us has something we can do. And the single most important thing that anybody can do, I'm absolutely convinced, is to use our voice to advocate for change, to tell people how it's affecting us in ways that matter to us here and now, and to talk about sensible, positive solutions. And these solutions can be at every scale because we need solutions at every scale. So, for example, one of the simplest things we're always told is to change a light bulb, right? Mm. And I love the fact that um, the guy who works for our local power company, who's part of our climate center at the university too, when he has spare time, he goes to Lowe's or Home Depot and he goes to the LED bulb aisle and he looks for people who look confused, who are trying to figure out, I have a 60 watt bulb and a 100 watt bulb, but now all these LEDs, they don't have watts on them. So what am I supposed to do? And so he goes there to help people buy those bulbs because he knows that it will save them money. Mm -hmm. He also knows that LED bulbs last longer. And especially if you're older, getting up on that ladder or finding someone to get up on the ladder for you is really difficult. An LED bulb can last up to 10 times longer. So you don't have to be getting up on a ladder, changing your bulbs all the time when you're older. And you'll be saving, I think it's like 90% less electricity is needed to power an LED. And if we replaced all of our, if, if every household actually just replaced a single light bulb with an LED, that would be like taking almost a million cars off the road. So a single action can help, but the most important thing we can do is talk about it. We can say, hey, I went through and I replaced the bulbs in my house and our power bill went down by this much this month. It was awesome. Or um, I actually finally got a plug-in car and it's great. I haven't gone to the gas station for two weeks and I love that. <laughs> um, I do have to fill up with gas when I go on longer trips, but I love just being able to come home and plug into the wall instead of going to the gas station, especially during coronavirus, mm -hmm. when you feel like you have to sanitize your hands and you don't want to touch anything. Uh, so personal individual actions do matter, but we need system-wide change. And so you Using our voice to advocate for change at every level is really important. So what, at what level? 
in our school or our university, in our place of work or our organization or our business, in our church, in our social organizations like our Rotary Club, or if we go to the gym, or if we go to, you know, a yoga studio, or if we go to a certain place, we can use our voice to advocate for change. And it's most effective if we do so by proposing an example of the solution. So rather than going in, say we're part of a gym. So rather than going in and wagging our finger and saying, I noticed that you always have all these machines on and there you're wasting electricity and money and you shouldn't be doing that. You're judging somebody and you're shaming them. And that's not an effective way to communicate, but rather go in and say, hey, I've been reading about how some gyms have actually managed to hook up their exercise equipment to their electricity. Mm-hmm. And so they've actually got people powering their electricity. And not only does it help save you money, but it shows people they're doing something good. And you can use it maybe as a marketing technique to get more people in because they realize that the energy that they're expending getting fit is actually being used to keep the lights on too at the same time. And it's really cool. And you can see how long you powered a light bulb depending on how long you ran on the treadmill or how long you biked. And so that might actually, you know, increase your motivation. Mm. So that's just one example that kind of sounds kind of trivial. But it's raising awareness of something that people can do in a positive way, in a constructive way, by helping them be even better at what they already do than what they are today. So um, using your voice to advocate for change, to create groups of like-minded people who come up with positive solutions. So rather than criticizing and judging and waving a bony finger, which never goes down well, um, instead providing something positive that can be done. And this can be done at the level of the city. This can be done at the level of the state. This is being done at the federal level. And let me give you a really cool example. It turns out that just about every economist in the world, including the two who won the Nobel Prize for Economics um, two years ago, this month, they agree that the most cost-effective way to reduce carbon emissions in a free market is through putting a price on carbon. Mm-hmm. And then collecting the revenues and using those revenues in constructive ways, which include giving them back to people as rebates, especially people in lower and middle income, middle income uh, households, so that they are not negatively impacted by increased cost of fuel if they don't have the opportunity to switch to cleaner energy providers or to different types of transportation. So almost every economist in the world, no matter what their political affiliation, agrees that this is the most sensible thing to do. And they've actually shown that it can grow the economy, it can create jobs, it actually benefits lower and middle income households. So there are two organizations that have formed to promote this idea at the level of the national government. The first one is called Citizens Climate Lobby. It was created by a real estate guy originally from California who just passed away recently um, and is now a true grassroots organization, not just in the U.S., but around the world with hundreds of thousands of members in the U.S. and many more around the world that come from across the political spectrum who, who speak compellingly and speak with gratitude to our elected officials, no matter whether they're Republican or Democrat or independently, saying, we know that you're here because you care about the people in your district, you care about the people in your state, you care about the people in your country, and we know that climate change is real and we need a bipartisan solution that people can agree on instead of arguing forever. So would you consider the solution? And they're backed up by something called the Climate Leadership Council, which was created by a number of Republicans from the Bush administration, combined with big companies and organizations from AT&T to ExxonMobil, which of course is an oil and gas company. So that's an example of advocacy at the national level with a tangible solution that is not judging or shaming, but that is saying there's a constructive answer 
So instead of trying to shore up the dying coal industry, mm. which has been dying for 30 years, instead, how about we put a price on carbon and use some of the revenues to invest in poor communities in West Virginia and Kentucky and Ohio that are already suffering? They've been suffering for 30 years and more from the devastation of the coal industry and from the impact of the coal industry on their health as well. Let's use some of those revenues to invest and to give them new opportunities and new jobs. Let's invest in a just transition instead of just trying to futilely shore up or even just lie and say we are shoring up and we're not really a dying industry, which is like trying to support horses and buggies back <laughs> in the century when Henry Ford is already producing the Model T Ford. Mm-hmm. We have to move with the times, but we have to ensure that the poorest and most vulnerable are not left behind. And bipartisan policies offer the way a way to do that. How do we get involved? We get involved again by using our voice, which every single one of us can do in person, on social media, writing letters, writing emails, phone calls. We can all use our voice. And that's the most important thing, because even if we lived the most low carbon lifestyle we could, if nobody knew about it, it wouldn't really make a difference. Mm -hmm. We're just one of almost 8 million people. And let me end with a a story of somebody who did that, just to make this point. Um, So a couple of years ago, there was a young girl who was really worried about climate change. She was anxious. She was getting depressed about it. She convinced her family to stop flying. She convinced her family to change their diet because, of course, if we eat large amounts of industrial meat, that contributes a huge part of our personal carbon footprint. They reduce their food waste. If food waste were its own country, it would be the number three producer of carbon emissions and methane emissions after China and the U.S. Hmm. So they did everything they could to reduce their personal carbon footprint. And if that's what they did, nobody would ever have heard of this girl. Mm-hmm. But one more thing. She took a piece of cardboard. She painted a few words on that piece of cardboard, just a few words, and she went and sat outside a building. Those words were school strike for climate. And that girl's name is Greta, and that girl ignited the global phenomena of children standing up and saying, climate change matters to me because I want a future. Would you adults please do something about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. That was so powerful. And I feel like you really tied together a lot of the questions I had. Do you think that's true for you as well, Ted? Yeah, I mean, this was great. Like, I, I enjoyed this. And I feel like I learned a lot just from hearing, you know, your your perspective, Dr. Hayhoe, and just some of the wisdom that you have, and even some of the questions that, you know, you ask. And um, yeah, the the conversation that's been in this community. I've really enjoyed this. This was fun. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hayhoe, where can um, our listeners connect with you on maybe social media or um, how can they, I, I'm assuming that on your website and similar websites, you have links to all these resources that people can kind of use as a springboard. Um, what handles would you like to share? I do. So my website is just my name, katherinehayhoe.com, but you have to be careful to spell it the mm-hmm, right way. Mm-hmm. I spell Catherine like Catherine Hepburn. So K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E. And on my website, I have links to social media. I post a lot on my Facebook page, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, even on Instagram. And I also have a YouTube channel called Global Weirding, Mm -hmm. which is over 30 short videos on frequently asked questions that I get. I collected all the questions that people ask me. We've made videos about them. We have two new videos about climate change and coronavirus, Mm -hmm. which people are often asking about. And we're just getting ready to write and produce the final season. It's going to be our fifth season with the very last set of questions that people have. And that's going to be, uh, we're working on it this fall. We got a bit delayed, obviously, because of the pandemic. And the final season is going to be coming out in the spring. So if you're interested, you can subscribe to our global reading channel and you will get a notification every time there's a new video that posts. Great. Well, that's that sounds good. 
Dr. Hayo, thanks so much for uh, coming on the program. We really enjoyed talking with you and really learning how to engage this issue in a, in a multifaceted way, looking at the intersection of climate change, this scientific or this uh, natural slash unnatural phenomenon um, and mm-hmm. the the policies that we can do both in our personal lives and as um, as nations or governments or systems. So thanks mm-hmm. so much. Thank you. And I would actually add one more resource, mm-hmm. which is on solutions. Project Drawdown is fantastic. Often we think, well, how am I going to talk about solutions? I don't even know what they are. But if you look at Project Drawdown, which is a book or a website, drawdown.org, it has over 100 inspirational, positive, and often very surprising solutions. So if you go to drawdown.org, you could read up on things like regenerative agriculture or enabling indigenous peoples to protect their forests or the education of women and girls in poor countries or reducing food waste or brand new cutting edge technology like mini modular nuclear reactors. You can read up on things you didn't know about it and it'll give you great conversation starters to say, hey, did you know there's this incredible new technology or this really interesting thing that people are doing. It'll help fix climate change, but it'll also do these other things too. So Drawdown is a great place to go for your conversation starters. Wow. Yeah. Thanks again for that resource. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. Ted, you want to close this out? Yeah. Listeners, uh, this has been an episode of Venn. We've been joined by Dr. Catherine um, Hayo, having really had a really great conversation about um, climate change and communication. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, global weirding.